Maggie O'Farrell, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Hamnet is your most recent book. It is extraordinary. It is dreamy. It is intoxicating. It unfurls like a fairy tale. Did this book really start for you when you were in school? I've read a couple of interviews where you've said, well, I started thinking about Hamlet when I was very young. Well, that's a very nice introduction, Mima. Thank you so much. It's such a thrill to be be here. I love Barnes and Nobles, and it feels like a long time since I've been in one, but I'm hoping it won't be too long time in in one again. Um, Well, I mean, I I, I don't think it would be fair to say that I began thinking about the book when I was 16. I mean, I began thinking about the boy, Hamlet Shakespeare, when I was 16, because I had... um, I, had, I was lucky enough to have an amazing English teacher at high school and mm-hmm. I was studying the play Hamlet for my Scottish hires, which you sit when you're about 16 coming up to 17. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this play just really got under my skin. And so this, this teacher of mine who was called Mr. Henderson, he just told us in passing one day that Shakespeare had a son who was called, who had been called Hamlet mm-hmm. and he died aged 11 about <clears throat> four or five years before he wrote the play Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just the, the similarity or the almost sort of echo of these names just really struck me. And I remember thinking, even though, you know, it was a long time before, obviously, I was a mother and a writer. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, what does it mean for a man to call a play and his hero and the ghost, let's not forget, after right. his dead son? What does that mean? You know, and when I went to university, I studied literature and I was reading a lot about, you know, Shakespeare and biographies and criticism and literary criticism about him and uh and Hamlet you know I was really struck by the fact that nobody really talked about Hamlet and he Mm -hmm. was lucky he got maybe two mentions in these big works of scholarship and I've just always felt ever since then really that Hamnet has been really downplayed he's been really overlooked he's been Mm -hmm. relegated to a literary footnote you know and I've read really respectable respected biographers and scholars saying, you know, it's impossible to know whether or not Shakespeare was thinking of his dead son when he called the play Hamlet, <laughs> which, you know, I'm actually, you can hear by my laughing. I just think, I just want to say, are you serious? You know, <laughs> what person would, but, you know, because just to say they were the same name in the 16th century, spelling was a lot less stable. So the names are interchangeable in not only Shakespeare's documents, but also Paris registers of the time. So he did use the same name, but you know, the idea that somebody would likely take the name of their dead son and give it to their play and their character is, you know, I mean, it's preposterous. We're both laughing as we talk about this. It's such a ridiculous idea. You know, the idea he'd have to write that name again and again in the manuscript. He'd have to hear it over and over again Mm -hmm. in the rehearsals and in the production. And he'd have to speak it himself because, you know, there there is a story that Shakespeare himself took the role of the ghost in the first production of Hamlet at the Globe Theatre. in 1601 so obviously it's ridiculous so I've just always felt that Hamnet the boy isn't well known enough his story isn't well known not Mm. enough people realize that Shakespeare had a son called Hamnet who died and so I wanted to write this book to give him a voice and a presence to say this boy was important his short life was significant without him we wouldn't have Hamlet and we probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night. And yet I need to talk to you for a second about Agnes, who is Hamnet's mother, who is possibly my favorite character. <laughs> I mean, I, gl- I glommed on to Agnes very, very quickly. <laughs> she is a farmer's daughter. She ends up marrying the Latin tutor, who we know as William Shakespeare, but and ends up having three children with him. There's Susanna, and then there are the twins, Hamnet and Judith. And her story is really kind of wonderful. And she's connected to the world in a way, even though she recognizes her husband's potential and recognizes the kinds of stories he needs to tell 
and the world he needs to be a part of. She's grounded in a way that is so wonderful and smart and funny. Did she just kind of show up or did you think, all right, well, I have a little bit of research and I know a little bit about the true person, but I think we're going to go this direction. Well, it was lots of different directions that Agnes mm-hmm. came from, to be honest. Um, and, you know, obviously I always knew that when I would write the book, I, Hamnet was going to have a mother. You know? <laughs> um, but I wasn't sure. You know, she's a very, I mean, the woman we know as Anne Hathaway, the right. woman we've been taught to call Anne Hathaway, is quite a shadowy figure. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we know very little about Shakespeare himself. You mm-hmm. know, we only have six examples of a signature. You know, he's he's left a very, very scant paper trail about himself, you know, despite this enormous output of yeah. his work. There's a kind of weird counterbalance that there's not much we know about him himself. There's lots of stuff we don't know about him. But if we think we know little about him, we know even less about his wife. Right. Um, you know, we don't even know when she was born. There's no register at all of her birth because she, she was born before Paris records began. We know that they got married and that she had a baby six months later, that Susanna, and she went on to have, like, say, twins. We know that she ran a malting business later in life. Um, and we know that she died um, in her late 60s, which was incredible mm-hmm. for that day and age because when right. the life expectancy in rural Warwickshire was 48. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, this paucity of knowledge about her has not stopped um, scholars and biographers, other mm-hmm. novelists, writers of Oscar-winning screenplays from rushing forward to fill that void with a huge amount of opprobrium and hatred and criticism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and vilification for her. And I was I was absolutely shocked and horrified and you know, my breath was completely taken away by the things that have been said about her. You know, we've been taught this one narrative about her all this time for 400 years. It was that she is this ignorant older peasant woman who lured this young boy genius into marriage that he hated her that he ran away to London to get away from her that he regretted his marriage you know all this stuff and there isn't a single not a single shred of evidence that I could find to Mm -hmm. support any of that theory any of that vision of their marriage and their relationship and actually it's not that unusual for men in the 16th century to go to London in Warwickshire to go to London to find jobs as as it isn't now and you know, there's no evidence at all that he hated her. Quite the opposite, actually. If you if you look at the plays, there are a huge number of very faithful, intelligent, uh, beloved wives. And I just, I was so shocked and so furious about this. And, you know, people will always bring up the famous behest in Shakespeare's will about leaving his second best bed to his wife. Unto my wife, I leave my second best bed. Uh, and people... As scholars have seized upon this thing, this proves that he hated her. It doesn't show any affection to her. But actually, I mean, if you look at the will as a document itself, there isn't any affection in the will at all. It's a very strange and dry document. You know, mm-hmm. you would never think that the person who wrote that will wrote the best lines we've probably ever read about love. Right. But actually, I mean, you know, the man was dying, let's not forget, mm-hmm. probably of typhoid, which is a particularly unpleasant death. And there's no sign of affection anywhere at all in any of the behests that he lives in, he, that he leaves. But you know, what her detractors never mention is that in, under Jacobean law, when Shakespeare died, she was entitled to a third of his estate, which was vast. He was the equivalent of a multimillionaire at this point. So she's entitled to a third of his estate and also to live on in the house until her death. So <laughs> the idea that she was this rejected wife tossed out on the pavement with just mm-hmm. a bed to her name is preposterous. You know, <laughs> So I was so furious about all this that I thought I want to... I want to ask readers to forget everything they think they know about Anne Hathaway mm-hmm. and open themselves up to a new interpretation of their marriage, which which was that it was a love match, that they did love each other, that there was it was a partnership. And also her name, I um so when I one of the things I read was her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before she married William. 
And he left her a very generous dowry in his will. And he referred to her as my daughter, Agnes. And I thought, you know, on top of it, it seems so emblematic to me, on top of everything else, we've been calling her by the wrong name for almost 400 years. You know, because if anyone knows, um, if anyone should know her proper name, it would be her father. And also Agnes is Latin for sheep, for lamb. And of course, her father was a sheep farmer. Um, so I always wonder if that's why he called his daughter, his eldest daughter, Agnes. I had no idea that Agnes was Latin for a lamb, um, but that does make perfect sense. Did anything really surprise you or anyone, I should say, as you were writing this book? I mean, as you said, there isn't a lot of documentation on Shakespeare and his life and his family. And, and you know, Hamnet himself gets two messages, two, sort of two mentions. Um, so you're essentially creating this world, but you do have to ground it to a certain extent. I mean, there were so many surprises. You know, when I, I was very nervous about writing this book because not only because it's him, you know, it's Shakespeare, who the untouchable, the literary icon, the BMR, you know, I, I was very nervous about taking him on, uh, but also about writing about a world that is so distant from ours. You know, it's 400 <laughs> years and the lives of the characters in that in my novel the lives of the women in the character are so so different from mine you know their days and their thoughts and their demands on them are so so different so it did see it so I was nervous about that but I think what I try to do really is um I tried never to kind of think to myself you know I'm now writing a historical capital H novel capital N because I think I would have got mm -hmm. terrible books go about that so I just tried to approach it as I would any other novel and I did I mean I actually loved the research I have to say and mm -hmm. the great thing about writing a novel that requires quite a lot of research is that, you know, there are always points when you're, you know, there are always points in the writing of a book, in the process of it, in the two or three years that it takes you to write it, where you do hit a brick wall with the narrative or the characters or the dialogue or the setting or whatever, the plot, whatever it is. But <laughs> if you're writing a contemporary novel, there's not a lot to do other than just tear your hair out until things start moving again. But actually, when you're writing a story, you think, well, I'll just do a little bit more research. <laughs> Maybe I need to know a little bit more about Elizabethan trade routes or I need to know a little bit more about, you know, the wattle and daub construction in the houses. <laughs> you know? But the thing, I think what I find interesting about it is the kind of balance you have to get between, in writing a, about the past, you have to balance between plot and also research. So in order to write a scene in, Mm -hmm. I don't know, we say three people having an argument in a in a in a parlor in an Elizabethan house. Mm -hmm. You've got to know what the walls are made of and the floors made of. You've got to know what the the windows look like and what clothes they're wearing, what the clothes are made of, what it feels like next to their skin, what's on the floor. Um, but actually you need to leave you so you need to know that to give yourself the confidence to just construct mm -hmm. the scene, but then you need to probably jettison about 98% of it from the actual scene itself. Because otherwise you're gonna write one of those historical novels that feels so leaden with a writer who's desperate to show their workings, who's desperate to show you they've done their homework. Because, you know, nobody wants to read a novel that reads like a PhD. You know, you have to keep it moving along. You've got to always remember that your reader may not be as interested in wattle and daub construction as you are. <laughs> and you've got to kind of keep that thought alive in yourself to not, not to lose your reader. So, uh, yeah, the, the research was an interesting process. And also the way you structured the novel, though, you're you're going back into Shakespeare's family's history and Agnes's family's history mm -hmm. and alternating chapters with their children being very sick, the twins. I mean, Susanna yeah. does not get sick, but the structure was a really interesting decision. Um, did you know that's where you were going to end up or is that where you start? How did you come to that? I think, I, I mean, the thing is, I, I'm not much of a planner with either with writing or with life, actually. Um, and I always have a vague idea where the book might end up. But I'm 
I'm always quite open to things changing as I go along. Uh, you know, I think it's a little bit like driving along a road at night and you don't know the road is in the country and there are no streetlights, but you know, you have those cat's eyes and you, you don't know where the road is going to bend until you're actually there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't know the terrain until your, until your headlights are illuminating it for you. Um, and I find that always the back, but I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to go back to sort of re, I don't know, reinterpret or revivify their marriage. You know, mm-hmm. I felt so, I felt that Hathaway has been given a very, very poor treatment over the years. Um, so I wanted to reinterpret their marriage for readers. Um, but, but I mean, but it's funny, I think structurally, in a sense, Hamlet is one of the most straightforward books that I've written, actually. A lot of my books, the structure is quite, I'm very interested in structure. <laughs> you know, I, like, I, think it, I think of it as a kind of three-dimensional shape, a bit like a sculptor would look at um, his or her work. But in a sense, I think the sort of biggest challenge for me was with Hamlet was, of course, the time frame and also grappling with who he, you know, Shakespeare is. So in a way, I, I think I thought I really need a simple structure with this one. It's just, there's too much else going on. I do love the way, though, you never refer to Shakespeare by his name. There's no William. There's no Will. There's no Shakespeare. There's no, it's <laughs> Eliza's brother or her husband, or Hamnet's father, or Judith's father, or Susanna's father. And I think it's a really terrific device. And I mean, obviously, it's deliberate. So how did you land there? Well, actually, I mean, it was a variety of reasons, really. I mean, the point is, his name is probably one of the most recognized everywhere in the world. You know, I think it would be hard anywhere in the world, actually, to find a person over the age of, say, 10 or 11, who doesn't know who he is. You know, his name, those two words carry so much heft and significance. Um, so in a sense, I I found it, I did experiment with using his name um, or various iterations of his name mm-hmm. in the novel, but I, just, I found that I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to write a sentence like, you know, William Shakespeare walked up the path and knocked on the door. You know, I just instantly felt like an Egypt and I was just pulled out of the... <laughs> the narrative and I thought well if I as the writer cannot stay submerged in this narrative with hearing or you know thinking about his name I can't expect readers to do it so in a sense I I just wanted to to sort of um I don't know divorce him from that name just take it away from him and just ask people or readers to see him just as a person as a human being because in a sense the book begins where before he was who he become you see what I mean if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, you know I think I was intrigued actually while I was writing it about the idea of what how people in Stratford-upon-Avon might have seen him Mm -hmm. before he became who he was or maybe even while he was doing his work you know you know I think he must have even at the age of you know if he was eight you know he left school probably about 15 and he married um he got married at 18 and, you know, I think, what would he have been like as an 18-year-old or a 15-year-old? You know, he must have been extraordinary even then. Imagine what it was like to be his rhetoric teacher or his Greek teacher or, yeah. you know, I mean, we know now, of course, what his imagination and his mind was capable of. But in those days, I think he must have been considered probably quite an oddball, actually. You know? So I was just interested in what he would have been like as a, as a youth, as a young man. And mm-hmm. in a sense, I wanted to to, to get rid of who he becomes so the reader can just see them him as a person as, as a human being the book was published hamnet was published in the uk in march of 2020 it's published in the us in july <clears throat> of 2020 mm-hmm. right at the height of everything mm-hmm. and the subtitle of this novel is mm-hmm, a novel of the plague mm-hmm. and yet the plague is it's there certainly but how did you settle on that subtitle? 
Well, to be, I mean, I should say that it's not known what the real Hamlet Shakespeare died of. Mm-hmm. You know, right. there is a record of his burial on the 11th of August, 1596, but there's no cause of death. So nobody knows what actually what he died of. But he did die in high summer, in a plague year. Um, and I know there were various things. And also the, the life of his twin, Judith, really intrigued me. So Judith mm-hmm. uh, lives until her early 70s which is actually jaw-dropping for that that day and age. So it's always seemed to me that Judith lived two lives in a sense. She lived hers (laughs) and she also lived Hamlet's as well towards the end. But Judith's life was not um, straightforward. In fact, it was pretty heartbreaking. She she had three sons, um, all of whom died. So the first one died when he was two. He was called Shakespeare, Shakespeare. And then she had two other sons who died in their, when they were 20 and 21 and 22, and they died within a week of each other in high summer. And her husband also died in the same outbreak of whatever it was. It was also in a plague year. So I just looking at these deaths and looking at her incredible survival through it all, I just right. got the picture of somebody who was somehow immune to whatever it was, felled these, let's think, four, five important men in her life, her twin brother, her husband, her three sons. Mm-hmm. And so I got the idea of this child who had survived the plague, um, who had immunity to it and was able to nurse these four other men through through their illness and through their death and lived to tell a very long time. But also I have to say the other thing that there's a huge, there's a very weird and loud echoing absence of the plague in Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. You know, I think what intrigues everybody about Shakespeare's writing is the enormous breadth of knowledge and themes and images that he draws on in all his plays you know, and geographies and characters and animals and, you know, you name it, law, he's got, it's all there. And it's astonishing what he knows, you know, botany, falconry, it's everything. But he never, ever, ever in any of his plots and any of his metaphors um, draws on the Black Death, which is very peculiar when you think about how prevalent it was in those days. It would have been the biggest fear of any Elizabethan. Everybody would have known its signs and symptoms. And it just seems to me a very significant echo. I mean, he does mention the pestilence a few times. There's one, there is a mention of a plague that stops the friar, of course, in Romeo and Juliet, which is a very important plot point. And there's description, I can't remember which play it's in now, it's gone, but there's a, about a pestilence in the air. But he never utilises, <laughs> reaches for that. And that's, it's significant. And one of the things I find, you know, I think one of the many things I find really intriguing about the play Hamlet is that I do think that in in, in that play, more than any others, that Shakespeare is more visible to us as a human being than he is in any other plays. I mean, in a kind of, in a in a good, you know, in a sort of positive way, if you look at the scene where Hamlet is has written a play within a play, mm-hmm. the play to catch the king, and he, there's an amazing speech where he talks to the actors who are going to speak his play. And he says to them, I want you to do it like this, but not like this. I want you to pronounce it trippingly off the tongue. And you read that scene and actually the hairs on the back of my neck go up because I think, there he is. There's yeah. William. <laughs> we yeah. can see him. But also the other thing, the scene I find, the speech actually I find almost too painful to read um, after having written Hamlet is the one where the ghost is describing the manner of his death. So he's... Mm-hmm describing to his son how he died. Um, and he's saying, I was lying in an orchard and my brother came along, and poured poison into my ear. And then he describes the course of the poison through his body and the agony of it, the physical agony um, of it coursing through the gateways and alleyways of my body, the gates and alleyways of my body. And he says, it was horrible, it was horrible, most horrible. And I, actually, I can't even know, actually, I feel <laughs> slightly emotional talking about because I, I have a horrible feeling that 
I really hope that Shakespeare made that speech up that he plucked it from his imagination. But I have a horrible feeling that he is describing Hamlet's death in that. And if you read it, it's so close to contemporary descriptions of somebody dying of the plague. So it was these are the places that I drew Hamlet's manner of death, my Hamlet's manner of death. Did the book start with character or did it start with a moment? I mean, did it really start with just the idea of taking back Hamnet and saying, okay, world, you don't know who this kid is. I'm going to let you know who he is. Or did it start with this sort of vision of what the world of this book is? It definitely started with a sense that I feel Hamnet has been overlooked mm-hmm. and underwritten and ignored for too long. And also that nobody has ever, I don't think anyway, I don't think anybody has ever emphasized the connection between this boy's death and the play you know the play I mean obviously there are so many different ways to interpret Hamlet and people are going to continue to find new ones you know which is Mm -hmm. one of the most fantastic things about Shakespeare but to me if you look at the play through the lens of the lost son Mm -hmm. it feels so so poignant that it is a message poignantly to me that it's a message from a father in one realm to a son in another Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't take a psychiatrist to suggest why a father who has lost a son would write a play where the son is alive and the father is dead, you know, Mm -hmm. because that is, as any parent will tell you, you know, if your child is suffering, your biggest sort of um, urge is to make some kind of strange supernatural bargain and say, I'll have it, you know, give me that broken finger, give me the dislocated arm. If, you know, I will change places, I will take it. And if you can spare the child, that's what you want. He's taken his son's death and he's given his son life. In the play, it's a kind of odd sort of wish fulfillment. So it just, you know, and I don't think anyone has ever, has ever traced the, you know, I mean, to, to me that the book really is about, art you know why we make it why we need it why we need to make it why we need to see it why we need to watch other people's stories why we need to make our own um and it's about how you can mutate grief into work um you know into art and that's that i I think that's what shakespeare was doing with the play hamlet certainly and i think it feels very different the play hamlet feels very different from all the others and i think that's why because it's because he was thinking about his son but i find and certainly in researching that aspect of the book, mm-hmm. um, but actually library-based research, which of course was very useful for the rest of the book, wasn't actually that useful. So with for particularly for Agnes, I did a lot of sort of physical hands-on research. So I planted my own Elizabethan medicinal garden. You can't see it from here. So <laughs> the other side. Um, and I went on a course to learn how to make these plants into the traditional medicines which they would have used because you know there's only you, you can only from there's only so much you can get from a book so you can read in a book you know they mm-hmm. used comfrey to ease arthritic joints but actually you know until you plant the comfrey plant and you harvest the leaves and you learn how to make them into a poultice and then mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't really understand um and I also actually the, I went the most fun thing I did was to go and learn um falconry so I went down to the Scottish borders and I met this very cool falconer <laughs> who's about 25 and she has all these birds and I she taught me to fly a kestrel so that's actually the the most fun thing I've ever done in the name of research and I went on an archaeological dig along the River Thames in London, mm-hmm. uh, particularly outside where the original Globe Theatre was. And in the sand, if you dig deep enough, you can find hundreds and hundreds of these brass pins um, that were used to pin the costumes. And so they were used to make keep uh-huh. the ruffs on and to keep the wigs on. And so that was really that was a kind of hairs at the back of your neck moment because I was thinking, well, 
some of these might have been Shakespeare's. Some of them might have been used in the original production of Hamlet. So we know Shakespeare is a major influence on you as a writer, as Maggie O'Farrell, the novelist and memoirist. Um, who else? Who are the other writers who've shaped you and your career and the kind of work you produce? Well, how long do you have me? Wait, honestly, I can, <laughs> I can, I can go on now until, um, until it goes. <laughs> I mean, I would say early on, I really fell in love with Turby Janssen's books, the Moomin books. Yep. And I loved Pippi Longstocking. She was just the best. Mm-hmm. And she's the, such a great role model for young girls, isn't she? Mm-hmm. You know, adventuring, messy clothes, climbing trees, keeping out, getting into all sorts of scrapes and trouble. So she was wonderful. And I really, when I was a teenager, I loved Albert Camus, The Outsider. That really, mm-hmm. I remember reading that when I was about 16 and I was so shocked. I didn't know that it was possible to write like that and to... Mm-hmm construct a story that with this peculiar voice and this peculiar vision on the world and a character who just sort of does arbitrary things because he doesn't see any reason not to so that really fascinated me and I love um I really love Molly Keane the Irish writer Uh, I think she's fantastic and I've loved Charlotte Bronte I love um George Eliot and uh, one of my favorite writers is Alice Munro I was asked what my desert island book would be, and I did choose those selected stories. I think she's extraordinary. There's nobody else like her. You know, the generosity of spirit and the amount she can pack into a 40-page short story is just, you know, and I, and I read the material, what she gives you in 40 pages, and that's some, what other novelists might take three, you know, a trilogy of three books mm-hmm. to, get, to get through. She's extraordinary. And I love Margaret Atwood. I love Anne Patchett. I love... Uh, Jennifer Egan, uh, who else? Uh, William Boyd. Um, I'm a big Michel Chabon fan. Uh, I love a lot of poetry as well. I do read a lot of poetry, particularly when I'm actually at the moment, I'm just coming to the end of writing a novel. And I find I've, I read all the time. I read novels all the time. But the only point at which I almost can't read novels is when mm-hmm. I'm just about to finish a draft of my own book. It's almost as if my head is a bit too full. So then I will read short stories and I will also read uh, poetry. So I'm actually being on a whole Mary Oliver um She's She's just, I mean, honestly, I love her so much. I I actually, I I, I sort of um, write them out and I put them on the fridge (laughs) because I just love them so much. And I feel that everybody in the household needs to read about them, read about her stones and her trees and her her wild imaginings and her boat, you know, when they're all, you know, getting some milk from the fridge. So that's just some to be going along with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You went from writing a memoir, though, to writing Hamnet. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> it was such a joy I'd say it was so great to get back into fiction I was so happy to get back to writing a novel it was like getting into a warm bath I thought thank god the truth is really hard it's much harder to tell the truth than it is to make things up I thought you know that was the thing I when I was writing I am I uh, I felt a bit like a kind of horse every now and again my bridle would be totally yanked back because I'd be thinking I'd be writing a scene and I would think if I could just you know relocate this whole thing to France or put it in the 19th century or bring in an extra character. And I think, oh God, I can't do that because I have to stick to the truth, which was such a shock to somebody who's, you know, who's uh, very wedded to fiction. So yeah, it was very, and it's not, you know, and I, it was a very interesting experience writing uh, my memoir, but I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't be desperate to run back to nonfiction, certainly about myself. No, maybe nonfiction about something else. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, this isn't actually the first time you've played with the, it is the first time you've played with 400 years worth of. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Esme Lennox was a BNN Recommends pick. I remember a lot back in the day, a long time ago. Yeah, and it was a while ago. And honestly, I hadn't, I hadn't picked it up 
since I mean, obviously I read it then and it was wild to me how (laughs) sort of gothic-y and I did, I hadn't remembered it being sort of that gothic-y and dark and it was like, oh, right. And then the ending, I was just like, oh yes, now. (laughs) (laughs) Because it wasn't going to end any other way. It was so, I don't know if there's a direct line that we can draw between Hamnet and Esme Lennox, except for the fact that you created both of them and they're both really wonderful books. But is there anything about Esme Lennox that you sort of carry around with you or maybe not? It's, it was a fun reread. I zipped right through it and I was like, oh, oh right, this nice. book. This I book. Think, I, always, I always think about that book with Barnes & Noble. I remember, I remember coming to New York. I was on a book tour and I came to New York and I, <laughs> I very shyly walked into a Barnes & Noble. I thought, I wonder if it's here. And I stood right at the front, with just in front of the door, and I was looking around it, and I was looking everywhere, and I thought, no, I can't see it anywhere. Maybe they haven't got it. <laughs> I looked down, and right in front of me was this table, huge table filled with yeah, <laughs> And I was so shocked, I nearly fell over. <laughs> and I still remember that moment, so it was such, such gave me such fright. Does it rely? I mean, I don't know. I have a, I have a real fondness for Esme Lennox. I do. I mean, yeah, it goes back to the 1920s. It's, it's, I was having a, a debate actually the other day with another writer because we were talking uh-huh. about you know, what makes historical fiction what where do you, where's the cutoff because there's a Ooh. there's a there's a pride and it's an interesting question isn't it and somebody yeah. one person said oh, i think it's 30 years which to me is a bit arbitrary but this other novelist that i was writing i was talking yeah. to she yeah. said i think it's beyond living memory yeah i live beyond living memory feels that feels Really, 30 years, I'm doing some mental math. And I'm like, that's not that long ago. <laughs> that's the, that's the, that was the 80s, isn't it? Which yeah, does, it's, it's interesting. But it's fine because when I wrote Esme Lennox, my grandmother was alive. And mm-hmm. I remember saying to her when I was writing it, I said, what would have a, what would have a girl in, from a nice sort of, you know, respectable family, what lipstick, would, what colour lipstick would you have worn? Because <laughs> I'd written this whole scene about trying lipstick. And my grandmother said, oh, she wouldn't have worn any lipstick. <laughs> You know, the very idea <laughs> and I thought actually but you know <laughs> but I but, you know, but I think now I mean now obviously my grandmother's passed away but I wouldn't be able to ask her that but to me maybe I think that's quite an interesting definition that there's nobody around that you can ask you have to do it all by research or sort of excavation somehow Possibly. I don't know I don't know what the answer is but it's an interesting theory <laughs> and acts of imagination I mean it's flat out acts of imagination you I read a really interesting definition by Marina Warner, and she said that writing is imagination working hand in hand with reason, which I thought was so brilliant. The reason piece is really interesting to me. I like yeah. that. Yeah, but the idea that it's, they're sort of hand in hand and they're, you need both of them, which I thought was a brilliant, brilliant definition of writing fiction. That sort of seems like a really good place to end, too. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, it's like, oh, that's a really good one. But um, Maggie, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And it was I totally my pleasure, Miwi. Thank you so much. I felt like we could have we could have chatted for hours. There. I really would like to, but you have a life to go back to, and I have I have a show to cut because this is I've going to be the kid. Pour it over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.